0: You can find answers to these questions and more in our latest report, which you can download at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.
1: How do seismic hazards such as earthquakes affect our communities and our infrastructure? In this episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, we'll be talking with Dr. Chikwebuka Nweke, who is an Assistant Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Southern California. He'll be telling us more about seismic hazards and their impact that earthquakes have on our infrastructure. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I'm excited to be bringing you another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast.
0: Before we dive in, we'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FE and PE exams. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the FE and PE exams the first time. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all the options available for FE and PE exam prep. Now let's dive into today's episode.
1: Welcome to the show, Chukwebuka. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great, Jared. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here.
1: So if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what is it that you do on a daily basis?
2: I'm kind of like a lifelong learner, a man who, like most people in the world, has made a ton of mistakes. A person who understands that he doesn't know how much he doesn't know. So in general, I'm just a stubborn person. I persevere. My day-to-day typically falls along uh, the lines of being like, I'm a young assistant professor, so I'm working towards change the world for the better, you know, through my research endeavors and improving resiliency and sustainability of infrastructure. Through my teaching and mentoring of members of the local community, global society, and through my service and outreach. My hope is to inspire future engineers and scientists, especially young black boys and girls. At the same time, I'm also working towards tenure. That's also important. So in essence, my day-to-day consists of a variety of things. You know, this includes teaching, reading, writing, meetings, discussions, mentoring, the usual administrative activities, email, paperwork, you know, stuff like that, and conducting research analysis, typically coding and model development, or I'm going in the field and I'm gathering data or I'm doing tests. So that's typically what I do. Kind of a snippet of who I am.
1: So it sounds like you probably don't have two days that are exactly the same.
2: No, they actually. No, there's no day that's the same. Actually, no day. It's a, Every day is a surprise.
1: Did you always think that you would be here as as a professor? Is this something that you always pictured as a young person, or?
2: I don't think that that wasn't the case. You know, as a young child, you know, I grew up in Nigeria, so I spent about 12 years of my life in Nigeria, and during that time a lot of my focus was, you know, just enjoying life. You know, as a child, your focus is enjoying life, but then, you know, your uncles and aunts will come and they will talk to you about, you know, what do you want to be in the future? And, you know, there's this saying out there, in you know, Nigerian families, if you're not a doctor, engineer, or lawyer, you know, there's no other option. But my parents were actually very supportive. They cared, the one thing they cared about was that I did well in school. That was pretty much it. So, my goal was to do well in school, whatever happens after that happens after that. Um, as a child, my dad was a civil engineer, so I'm a second generation civil engineer. So, I grew up in the life of a civil engineer. I watched my dad do consulting drawings. He used to have his own the T Square, he used to do his own drawings. And I used to bother him all the time. So he got tired of me and he just bought me maps. So I would sit in his office for hours while he's doing his work and I'm just tracing maps, you know, just so he, I don't bother him. And that was kind of like my way to get into like the, the realm of you know geology, geography, understanding the world as a, a bigger space. So from there, you know, I kind of went from there. And over time, you know, civil like, engineer was always there. As you get older and older you can start hearing about you know well, what makes the most money you know rich guys bill gates and all these other. So i'm like oh, I, I want to be the richest person alive so i'm like what can i do to get them so that was the case for a little bit and then that kind of died away and then when i got to um high school here in the states i just figured i would just go just default to what i know which is engineering because my dad was an engineer uh, my mom was an entrepreneur so and my dad had his own business so i kind of had that free spirit minded i didn't really want to work for anybody but I also wanted to gain experience, so it was kind of a weird conundrum that I sit sat in. But I got to college and, you know, I applied to different schools. And I just applied civil engineering. I, know I applied to nuclear engineering for one of them. Didn't get into that school. Eventually got back in. But I ended up a civil engineer at Davis, so that was what I did. And I just, over time, it worked out. And then I didn't really think of faculty. You know, my freshman year in college, I was more so concerned with graduating. That was a big deal for me. I just wanted to graduate as fast as possible which was not smart, you know, and somebody eventually talked me out of it. But then as I continued to, you know, evolve and traverse through the undergraduate experience, you know, then I learned all these different things, discovered all these different things, discovered geotech. And that was it, you know, the geotech part kind of made its way because as a child, you know, I remember this goes back to my dad. My dad and I used to watch Discovery Channel a lot in Nigeria. Dinosaurs were very fascinating. I loved the aspect of dinosaurs. And a lot of things that have people understand is that archeology, span has a lot to do with soil development, soil properties, and geotech. You have to excavate. It's there's a huge portion of archaeology that's very much so geotech related. And I didn't know at the time, but I was you know with just the idea of geology and the evolution of planet fascinated me mm-hmm. completely. I an engineer we used to watch engineering. I forgot what it was. This show like engineering wonders or something like that. in Discovery Channel. We would see all these buildings get built. So I you know finding out geotech, when I found geotech. I'm like oh man, this is perfect. It's like, the world I love and the world that I know. And they just combined them. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, it just made sense. I kept on following the path and it led me to the faculty, you know. I step when I developed my love for research. I was always inquisitive. When I developed my love for research, it kind of went its way over here, just step by step.
1: You know, you went from, I want to graduate as fast as possible to getting a terminal degree, right? It's like. <laughs> the complete
2: opposite. That was not planned. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like, I'm going to leave 10 years later. <laughs> yeah, right?
1: <laughs> well, prior to joining USC, I understand you were practicing as, a, as an engineering consultant. What made you make the transition from consultant to professor in your engineering career, and,
2: and how was that transition? That's an interesting story. <laughs> That's a very interesting story. I'll start with the birth of my daughter, and at the same time, a bleak perspective of lighting an academic job. It was. I was finishing my second year in postdoc fellowship. It was like October of 2019. I had just returned from a visit at a university in the Midwest slash like Southern region in hopes of landing like an academic position. It didn't pan out. So after that, my daughter was born, and once she was born, you know, there's this huge thing with once you become a parent, a lot of realizations come to play. And one of the realizations was like I could no longer afford to chase this dream of becoming a professor and conducting research based on how things had gone so far at the time. At the time, I knew industry was an option and a good one at that. But when you go through academia, there's, there's this unspoken allure, or notion um, that I had, which is false, by, by the way, that anything other than an academic position after the PhD would be falling short in terms of success. This is my personal thought and does not represent anyone other than myself. I know some people, other people who have expressed similar feelings, but I'm speaking for myself. So pretty much that thought of not being successful, I kind of got over that quickly, you know, having a baby makes that easy to get over say like, say, okay, that doesn't matter. So my focus was provided for my family. So I found, and I wanted to do something also that was interesting and that I can do for a career. And, you know, industry and geotech was perfect. You know, they, you know it worked out perfectly. It was great. So I went on the job market for the in- industry job market and then had a couple of interviews, some discussions. And eight months later, I got a job offer from an awesome company. I was going to start in August. Now, because of this opportunity that I just got, um, my time as a postdoc, as a researcher, in my academic life, had an end date so I had to wrap up as much as i could before i left and i just again to preface it was my intention a hundred thousand percent to p- go fully into my career as a practicing engineer i had written a five-year plan i was working on a 10-year plan for that company i was going to be in i was gonna be like okay i'm going as a project engineer i'm going to go up i'm going to after a couple of years i'll move up my whole was my goal was to you know work on these projects you know they had these suite of projects you know help start chasing projects and making connections you know the thing that you do as a practicing engineer Going to go find clients, making those connections, that networking, and then the company at the time was actually expanding. They had expanded from California to Guam to New Zealand. I was like, you know what, you know, maybe we can think about. I can try and spearhead an expansion to Africa, Nigeria. You know, my dad had a company there, so I had this full plan. I know my, I was creating this plan. All of a sudden, things changed because you know, practice, prior to all this, we getting the offer, I had garnered interest, some interest from you know the university close by where I'm at now, but due to circumstances that are too long to discuss things kind of hit us, you know, a stall point, you know, COVID, a few other things. So, but however, after I kind of received that industry offer, through some mysterious way, the academic opportunity came up. So I listened to the universe. (laughs) That was pretty much it. It's a crazy, crazy ride.
1: We would never just throw away plans, you know, but I think that it kind of puts us in the position for that next opportunity. You keep your mind open. And you see where you land. But no, that's that's really great. And I, I'd love to hear, I understand that you know, you have research that involves modeling geomaterials and investigating seismic and other natural hazards. Talk about that a little bit and then also talk about what are the different seismic hazards and how do you measure seismic risk. My research
2: interests are focused on properly characterizing seismic side effects in sedimentary basins and also non-basin areas. And what is, a sedimentary basin essentially is a depression in the earth that's filled with sediments that from erosion and mass wasting coming off the hills and mountains and eventually forms a flat, low-lying plain. You know, there's lots of basins in the world. You know, LA has a big basin, San Francisco Bay Area has a basin, Salt Lake City is a basin, Las Vegas, Houston is in the basin, you know, there's a great basin in the East Coast, you know, the entire Mississippi Delta, uh, you know, all those places, there's bases all over the world. Kathmandu, Mexico City, you know, can be, I can keep going. So the reason I'm focused on characterizing seismic side effects in those places is because it is, this component of site response is particularly important because it kind of relates to the induction of hazard levels that affect infrastructure that's critical to life and safety of the global population, particularly when it comes to day-to-day living, living. you know, An important type of infrastructure that is adversely affected by basin effects are medium to tall buildings. And this is because the natural period of these structures coincides with the typical period of the seismic wave associated with basin effects. So once the wave goes through basin effects, and this depends on the, on the size of the basin, and the depth, and you know, the shape. You know, it could be medium buildings are affected, so it could be taller buildings so that can be between. And also bridges are susceptible. So that makes for a big, big issue because most of the world right now is kind of concentrated in these urban environments. And like, for instance, okay, we just hit 8 billion people in the world. This was like a couple of weeks ago. Out of that 8 billion, about 5 billion are in urban populations. About 60% of the 8 billion live in urban populations. Now, if you look back, back in 2000, it was 47%. And then in 2010, it was 50%. So that was a 3% increase. In the last 10 years, we've added another 10% to urban. So the urban population is exponentially increasing. Because of that, kind of the way we kind of deal with stuff in our present society is we kind of build up to kind of meet those demands. You know, we we saw that all those tall buildings that are being built back when we went to the A conference, massive, beautiful works, but... These things are, if you don't design them properly, they're not going to last a, a long time and people are going to live it. It's going to cause a lot of casualties. So in truth, seismic risk kind of depends on the feature of interest that you're interested in. And it's kind of hard to dissociate infrastructure performance and life safety. As a result, you know, seismic risk depends on the type, age, and the use case of the infrastructure. And as you know, we have a big issue in the U.S. with aging infrastructure. So that can give you an indicator of what kind of the issues we face in seismic prone areas. But the sort the slightly simple explanation is that In order to quantify risk, you first have to characterize your hazard. That's the first step, right? You can't determine risk without knowing what's going to happen, meaning you have to know to some degree how hard you're going to get hit and what's the probability of that scenario. Then once you get that, then you have to sit there and associate the hazard levels with some level of damage or no damage. And this essentially is the fragility of the system, which is a, a very common, commonplace thing. And then what you do is you take that fragility of the system and that characterization of the hazard and then you combine them under some level of exposure, use case of population, whether it's a service or a resource to some to the population, whether it's a building or a power plant, and then you're able to determine the risk level. So that's kind of what you need. You kind of need to, it's a full couple of steps to kind of get to the risk. And the seismic risks are they vary, but you have this risk from shaking, you have the risk from ground failures, liquefaction, lateral spreading. There are a significant amount of risks that you can deal with. You have, you know, from Northridge. You have derivative damages that can occur, fire, flooding, those things. And so earthquakes and seismic activities kind of run the gamut of what you can do when it comes to all kinds of hazards. And then we still have other natural hazards. Clearly, we saw what happened recently in uh, Florida. Those are not going to stop anytime soon. So all kinds of hazard and risks that we deal with are necessary. Seismic risk just happens to be a big issue in the West Coast. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the East Coast also has a seismic issue you know Charleston. New Madrid, you know, New York has a small fault just over there, just north of it by Rochester. You know, there are faults here and there. You know, that's the reason why those those places look so nice. You know, the faults <laughs> put them together. So.
1: Wow, so there's a lot of things that can go wrong, a lot of things to go right. So there's a lot of things you have to think about. So sort of like the basics of uh, what it is you're doing. You know, how would you explain what a seismic site response is? I'm sure some students listening in and they're scratching their head right now. <laughs> they're
2: saying, "Make it make sense." Sometimes you know the allure of these statements, you the, uh, know, especially with the people who present these work. You know, it's like jargonized. You become so like wrapped up in the mystery of it. But the truth is, seismic site response is just the response, or some will say, the behavior of a particular location under earthquake excitation. That's pretty much it. And the main thing to know is that it's influenced by a variety of physical mechanisms. You know, resonance, nonlinearity, topographic effects amplification due to impetus contrast or changes in stiffness in the subsurface, and 3D wave propagation effects in sedimentary basins. All those things kind of contribute to site response. It's not different to trying to figure out the shear strength of some kind of soil, sand or clay or gravel. You're trying to understand the behavior of this particular material. In this case, I'm trying to understand the behavior of this site, which is a compilation of a stack of material and also some kind of orientation and hazard from distance or close by. So it varies that's pretty much it
1: now infrastructure is something that you know we've been talking about for a while right it's something that we're focusing in on now we have a bipartisan bill so infrastructure is going to get addressed right we have aging infrastructure that has its own challenges right but what is the impact of an earthquake on infrastructure and on aging infrastructure
2: now, i was saying earlier the, the amplification particularly due to 3d wave propagation and sedimentary bases can lead to excessive amplitude. so I'll give you an example. For instance, in, in Southern California, the city of Los Angeles alone has about 10 million people. This includes the San Fernando Valley, the Los Angeles Basin, which is massive, the San Gabriel Valley, which is also a basin. And if we have a magnitude seven earthquake occur right here down the street on the Hayward, the, the Newport Fall, it's gonna be a bad situation for us in here. <laughs> it's, it's gonna be pretty bad. we hope for that it not ha- happen. So, because and because we're in a basin, we just get more. You know, you can imagine. Think about how the orchestra in like uh in the amphitheater, how that sound gets to you from down there. You know, it's just it's bouncing back and forth off all, and that's, they make the walls so it bounces back and forth. Well, Mother Nature does the same thing. You know, and she's pretty good than we are at creating things that reflect. It's gonna get ringing. You know, increased duration, amplification. You know, and this just increases the number, the demand on the structures where there's tall structures, lifelines, pipelines, there's all kinds of things that happen. So you can get collapse and loss of life just from shaking the lung. But that's just one component. We also have ground failures that can cause, that, that happen from earthquakes. Fault rupture, liquefaction, lateral spreading, excessive settlement, landslides, and many others. And these damages could, they could affect lifelines like water pipelines, gas pipelines, and for the, for the younger generation, like, like the communication network. Oh my God. Yeah, no Wi-Fi. What do we do? Don't let the Wi-Fi go. Oh, that's a wrap. You know, you know, some people just don't know how to live without Wi-Fi. So, you know, transportation networks, you know, the bridges, all those things can get destroyed from earthquakes or, the, you know, ground shaking or derivatives from, from earthquakes, you know. Like, for instance, we just came back from Taiwan. I was part of the gear team that went to Taiwan to kind of investigate and do, do reconnaissance for September 18th or 19th magnitude 6.9 earthquake in southeastern Taiwan. And... They had bridges, like, this, are critical bridges, by the way, that connected a valley. Without these bridges, you can't really get across. Completely collapsed. We talk, like, utter collapse. What do you do? Luckily, they had some bridges that survived. So they were able to, now, you know, everything is funneled to one bridge, but what does that do for your community? Now, luckily for Taiwan, that region of Taiwan is not heavily heavy populated. It's mostly agriculture. But imagine that happening in somewhere like Los Angeles or somewhere the area between Atlanta and Charleston, something crazy like that. It was the pandemonium. It would be crazy. Look what happened recently with all this pilot, the supply chain. And this, this was just a small situation. That's kind of impacts you can have.
1: It just shows how important it is that we're focusing in on these things. And um, it's one of those things where you have time, right? Well, we don't have time because these things are going to keep happening. So we have to stay in front of the next disaster, which is, uh, it almost sounds like the the storm chaser shows, right? It's like you have to stay in front of it. I want to double down a little bit on this. So, so Dr. Noike, if we were to evaluate seismic damage of urban road infrastructures, like that's something that's important. But why is it important?
2: The one thing that people take for granted significantly is the roads they drive on. We can plant no a lot. Of- like for instance, I'll give you an example. The city of Oakland has a big issue with potholes. It's a big issue. But it doesn't really affect, I guess, the global economy, right? But it, it significantly affects the local economy because people's cars are getting messed up, spending more on tires, you know, more repairs. But imagine this now on a bigger scale. These transition systems are conduits. They're they're super critical systems because they serve as conduits for resource and sustenance and more. Like imagine right now in your body, one of your blood vessels just shuts off. Yeah, that's a problem. You'll be dead. Imagine now we have this network, this conduit is a network of transition systems that connect east coast to west coast, north to south, you know, and on top of that further to the, to the rest of the world. So the disruptions to these systems will deficit alignment. We can see what happened. for instance, what, when the canal got blocked for a week, almost pandemonium, or when the ships couldn't dock at the port here in LA. Now, we you know, lumber went up 150%. <laughs> you know, everything is going up like, we see, we talk about inflation, you know, people are worried about and rightfully so the, the inflation that's due to the pumping of money into the economy. But people forgot that that inflation started from the disruption, the to infrastructure, the to transportation. So like, for instance, imagine like, okay, for instance, like interstate, the I-10, which goes from kind of LA for Santa Monica and connects all the way to East coast, Florida, Pensacola and, and Jacksonville. Now imagine just from the LA to Texas that we have the San Andreas fault, which just destroys the road completely between LA and Texas. Now, you know, the goods from Asia and the Pacific can't get to the rest of the country. Similar situation with the the Interstate 15 at the Cajon Pass. That's the road that goes from L.A. to Vegas to Utah and Montana or or Idaho. That Cajon Pass is a conduit, a major conduit because it houses not only the road, it also houses the railroad that for Union Pacific, that pretty much takes everything over there. Houses our gas pipelines, emergency pipelines. So, and that's one of the most dangerous places because that's where the San Andreas kind of meets the San Jacinto. It's a big issue. If that goes off, you, pretty much it would be like fireworks. It would be like a Michael Bay movie if that ever ruptures. It would be fire everywhere. It would be crazy. And the same thing, you know, like I said, with the, the, I, the I-85 or 95, if that's damaged by the Charleston Zone earthquake, you know, there will be big issues for goods and services. So these are some of the things that we need to address. And we're working on it as a, as a community, the industry and the research community. That's our goal. But you know, luckily we got this infrastructure bill because we got lots of things to fix. Number one is the railroad system. You know, US, unfortunately, America, though we're greatest country ever, we have one of the worst railroad systems. If you take apples to apples and take the US rail system and compare it to any other rail system in the world for like top comparable countries, Japan, Switzerland, you know, the UK, they're like moving in like light speed compared to what we're dealing with. We don't even have a high speed rail in the US. Like that is 2022. There's no high-speed rail in the US. It's it's ridiculous. We're talking about things that people have been have. Japan has had a high speed rail for golly almost 30 years. We got, but luckily we got some money. Everybody, you know, we're pouring money into the infrastructure because truth be told, these infrastructure, when they get fixed, you know, we have jobs, we make it better, we make it safer, we're improving sustainability, we're improving resilience, we're push, we're improving the livelihood of our population. That leads to more jobs, better health. All these things are connected. So we're trying to make the world a better place here, so many years. We may not get all the, the love and the, the sexiness of the computer science. We're doing the grunt work, man. We're doing the stuff that's necessary. Without us, you can't have no hospital. No, Facebook can't have no building without us there, you know, you know? What, what are they going to do? They're going to the, code in the streets.
1: <laughs> We're doing the things that nobody sees that not many people appreciate, but it is necessary and essential. That is true. Well, I know that you're involved with various associations and, and committees. How has that experience helped you to grow your engineering career? And I know that you've been passionate about
2: the things that you're doing, but how has that helped you to grow your career? Again, just excuse the cliche, but you know, the saying that no man is an island is very important. It's kind of a foundational principle for us as global citizens. People have many different attitudes, Like, you know, the same thing is, it takes a village. You need a community. You need a cohort, mentors, associates, friends, families, colleagues, etc. Every member of your community serves a purpose for its other members, and the benefits of a community are simple: It's the ability to be grown and to help others grow. That's what a community is for. You know, a forest is not just one tree. These, you know, the combinations of variety and specifications and specializations all come together to provide a resource for things that you are. I have benefited significantly, greatly, from the communities I'm a member of. You know, going all the way back to undergrad. Shoot, going back as far as my you know my childhood my family was my first year, So that was very important to for who I am. You know going to undergrad I learned a lot of leadership and listening skills as a NSB board member region 6 you know here in the East Coast the West Coast. I learned practical and problem solving skills as the co-captain of the ASC GeoWalk team at UC Davis, you know, participating in mid-pack competitions where I got to meet with other individuals and sharpen your steel. I cultivated my critical thinking skills as a graduate student through my research but also through discussions with members of the Geotechnical Society at GOC2 conferences, at the ERI conferences, you know, and others. The network that I have was developed through all these experiences and many more in a variety of communities. I've had a, the massive fortune to have been a member of or to have access to these communities, and it has served me significantly. These are places where I often reach out for advice, insight, or inspiration. These people are there to guide you, give you some, nobody's perfect. You know, that's the one thing that's guaranteed in life. You will make a mistake. It's There's nobody in this world that has gone through everything and is like A plus, 100%. No, We're sitting there. Most people are sitting around 75. You're, you're sitting around a C, C plus at best. You know, at best, at, at best. You know, so you will know, we'll make mistakes. And when you make those mistakes, you know, you need to essentially know that you have people to support you because when you're in isolation, you have no perspective. When you have no perspective you have no vision and without the vision you have nowhere to go right you're sitting down twiddling your thumbs it's a devastating thing so i, I think you know my communities have been very very important for me. the committees the friendships you know all those things every single one of those moments has made me who i am today has contributed to the value that i have now have and i'm able to share with others it's a big deal.
1: Uh, that's great for anybody that's listening in it's not a part of a community Do what the good doctor said. Join a community. It is very important. And you're right. One of the worst things that can happen, especially somebody who's a a geotechnical engineer, is to be working in isolation. Right? It's like you want to be around other folks. So that's that's really good counsel. Before we take our break, final piece of advice you want to give the listeners and those watching.
2: I would just share kind of a mantra that I, I kind of hold to, which is essentially push the boundaries of your comfort zone. Always push the boundaries of your comfort zone. In doing so, find comfort in being uncomfortable. It's going to suck at first, right? It's going to be frustrating, but I can promise you the benefits far outweigh the costs. by leaps and bounds. You know, as growing up, I always heard the thing: nothing worthwhile comes easy, and much that is easy is often not worthwhile. So, in essence, you know, the truth is just give full effort in things that are important and necessary. The things that are not that are important but not immediately necessary, they have their time and place. focus on the things that you can make significant impact on and allocate some portion of your other time to those important less necessary things anything outside of that is not critical to your progress and dropping them should not affect your trajectory at all and actually once you start dropping them you'll find out that you don't regret or you don't miss any things you drop because you're going to be focusing on the things that matter we have a finite amount of time on this planet And your job is to maximize your time on this planet to the best of your ability. Now, I know sometimes you're going to, I'm not talking about, you know, where I'm not some guy that preaches, oh, I'm constantly moving. I have my low times too and my downtime. The goal is that those times don't consume. They're like a storm. They're going to pass. You know, you just wait and they pass. Or you actually, most people, there's this thing I learned recently about buffaloes and how buffaloes, when they see the clouds coming, because they don't like to be wet, when they see the clouds coming... They run into the storm because you know that 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 will lead them to have the shortest amount of time in the water. So, no. so if you can run into the storm, if things get difficult, dive into it. It's not going to last forever. Right. It's going to pass. And more than anything, the most important thing is to enjoy yourself. This is the hardest thing to do because we are our own worst critics. I still struggle with this significantly. So I'm a work in progress in a lot of things. And so the things that I try to do is, you know, congratulate yourself. Be grateful for any progress you make no matter how little, acknowledge it. It's much harder to acknowledge your success and it's very, very easy to focus on your mishaps and your errors. So focus on the successes and use the errors as a lesson, essentially as an investment in your progress. That's my last piece of advice,
1: That's solid. well, thank you so much. We're gonna come back in just a minute and close this one out with Dr. Nweke in our career factor safety end segment. Stick around. All right. Welcome back. It's time for our career factor safety in segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor of safety into your career? Today, of course, we're speaking with Dr. Chukwe Buka Nweke, assistant professor at the University of Southern California. Dr. Nweke, You've already had a very successful career, which I know it's not over, right? I don't say like you have retired. <laughs> but when you look back at your career so far, what is the one thing you've implemented in your career to give yourself, let's call it a factor of safety in your career?
2: The way I've introduced a factor of safety is by always ensuring that no matter the situation, my decision that I make is based on the best available information available at the time. Meaning that regardless of the path, even if it gets, if, if my path is like super foggy, meaning I have no idea what I'm doing. I always take the next step in front of me that is the best step in front of me. And this course of action kind of requires that you kind of plan for the worst, hope for the best. So, you know, they have to saying, you know, it's the idea of faith. I'm a man that kind of indulges a lot in faith. So what faith is essentially is taking a step even when you don't know what's in front of you. But believing that each step that you take will inevitably lead you to the destination that is meant for you. So that's kind of my way of doing it. Everything I do, as I told you, I'm just, I make the plan. I do this. I just take whatever step I think is best. And then when the universe speaks, I listen. I just keep moving. That's kind of what I do. That's
1: great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Nueke, for coming on and sharing all the great insights with us. You share some great information and advice that I know is going to be helpful for our listeners and those that are watching. Now, if somebody is listening or watching this, I want to reach out to him. What's the best way for people to get you? Are you on social media or an email address you want to share? We'll get that in the show notes.
2: I'm accessible via Twitter at Dr. B-U-K-4. So it's at D-R-B-U-K-4. I'm also on, quote unquote, as young people call today, the Gram, IG. Same same handle, at uh, Dr. B-U-K-4. And uh, for us that are slightly older, I'm also on Facebook. And then LinkedIn, you know, I'm always available via LinkedIn. Just type my name and you find me on LinkedIn. I'm accessible. But thank you for coming on. It's a lot of fun. Thank you, guys.
1: I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com, where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 66, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all of your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace.
0: dot org.